One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Right, well. A very, very, very warm welcome to everybody joining us here in the Soho Hotel in London. And an equally warm welcome, of course, to you if you're watching or listening to us at home or in the car, which is where I am usually when I'm listening to that <laughs> It's quite a special feeling, I think, actually, being in this room and knowing that all of us right now have a sort of warm bond of being fellow passengers on the rocket of right thinking. Yay. I think a lot of us, last, this last two years, got used to be f- made, being made to feel we were in the wrong somehow, that we were either mad or bad or both, that we didn't care if COVID killed people, or even worse, we were told we actually wanted people to die. Mm. Of course we didn't, we did care a lot. But a lot of us, I think, began to doubt our own sanity. We were called COVID deniers, even though none of us actually denied COVID at all. We just didn't agree with the way of dealing with it. Suddenly, people who'd been friends or neighbours or even family members thought we were subversive heretics. If we met somebody in the street, I found, you know, we'd stand the required two metres apart and attempt to suss out very carefully where we stood before we could risk having a relaxed and honest conversation with them. And we watched, didn't we, those dreaded press conferences in the afternoons with Boris and Matt Hancock flanked by those miserable scientists. (laughs) Next slide, please. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Next slide, please. Dire predictions of thousands, tens of thousands of deaths and the modelling, those terrible charts of doom. And the press at the end only really wanted to know why we weren't locking down harder, why we weren't locking down longer. No challenge at all. In fact, the mainstream media had no interest in challenging the prevailing orthodoxy at all. They were fully on board with putting the fear of Jesus into everybody to make us comply with the edicts from on high, many of which were totally absurd. Alison came up with a fabulous list of 50 of them <laughs> in the Telegraph a few weeks back. And I'm, I've, co- I've copied mine and I'm going to actually frame it, I think, as a sort of a lesson to never go down a that route again. substantial scotch egg. That's safe to sit down and eat one of those, isn't it? <laughs> and we all remember, don't we, the taped-off adventure playgrounds, the closed schools and the kids stuck at home, often with frustrated and ill-tempered parents... The pubs we couldn't go to, well, sometimes we could, but only we have, if we had that scotch egg scotch with our egg. drinks. <laughs> the shut-up universities, the care homes that became prisons, the hospitals where many people suffered alone with no visitors to aid their spirits or their recovery, and the many people who died alone feeling totally abandoned. The stalled judicial system, the disenfranchised teenagers roaming the streets, the dismal funerals. Well, I don't need to go on. We all remember, don't we? And we all also remember, I'm sure, what a relief it was 100 weeks ago on May the 28th, 2020, when a new podcast was launched. The capsule of common sense took off on the first of its weekly journeys to planet normal, taking us very gratefully, grateful and <laughs> relieved passengers on board along with them. At last, we knew we weren't bonkers or bigots. There were other people who felt like we did. 
our forceful and articulate co-pilots, Liam L. Halligan and Alison Pearson, were on That's our side. That's a microaggression. <laughs> <laughs> but they were rooting for us. And we resonated also with all those heartbreaking stories that were coming through to the programme on the emails all the time. When Liam had his original idea for the podcast, it was actually not about COVID. It was to bridge the increasing lack of connection he'd been noticing between the mainstream media and us regular normal people whose interests they were supposed to be representing. During a taxi journey, I think it was, the two of them had, he suggested to Alison that the two of them together should offer offer the public a fresh approach, honest, objective, campaigning, challenging, independent and above all, believable journalism. Alison, at that point, didn't actually know what a podcast was. No. <laughs> Techie whiz kid she isn't. <laughs> but thankfully, she agreed to co-pilot the weekly Planet Normal rocket trip and how lucky we all are that she did. She and Liam are the perfect partnership. And just as the rocket launched on its first few journeys, so also did the COVID madness begin to take off. Liam and Alison felt that everybody informing and dictating our lives, the broadcast journalists, the press, the government and the opposition parties, they all seem to have totally lost their critical faculties somehow. So the two of them started asking questions and examining the data. How novel. (laughs) Where most journalistic outfits ran for cover, the two of them turned and faced it. They grasped thorns and nettles with their bare hands, often getting sung very hard in the process. And I know that at times both of them felt like chucking in the towel. But at the risk of making them blush, I've got to pay huge tribute to them. I never fail to be impressed by Liam's ability to make complicated financial matters actually understandable. Anything to do with economic theory and I usually glaze over, but it all makes sense when Liam talks about it and explains things. <laughs> and when I explain why I don't understand it, see? <laughs> That's always very helpful. And his political knowledge and connections are second to none too. And Alison's writing also just flies off the pages of The Telegraph. Sharp, informed, campaigning, always entertaining, and she always manages to nail the issue of the moment. Her column and the views she expresses on Planet Normal as well are invariably exactly what I'd have liked to say myself if I'd been half as articulate or half as clued up. And by the way, through listening to Planet Normal, I've learned that Alison and I have quite a lot in common. (laughs) We both have Welsh ancestry, like. Like, yes. (laughs) We were both in the Brownies and we were both sixers with the Pixies. Sixer of the Pixies. Pixies Patrol. (laughs) You're impressed. Go on, you're impressed. (laughs) We were both Sunday school teachers when we were teenagers. Um, We both had our first children in our mid-30s. And last but not least, neither of us are mathematicians, (laughs) which is why we both appreciate Liam's ability to explain how the economy works. The two of them have managed to get just the right guests every week too. Maybe somebody this evening might ask how they actually managed to do that. But names that spring to mind are the forceful Lionel Shriver. I'm a huge fan of hers. Mm. Mervyn King, great conversation with Liam. Lord Sumption, been a bit quiet lately. Professor Carl Hennigan, Professor Carol Sakura. Oh, one of my favourites back in 2020 was Brian the Fisherman. I can't remember his surname, <laughs> but he was wonderful, wasn't he? Um, 
That's his surname, <laughs> the fisherman. <laughs> for tax purposes, Your Honour. Because <laughs> one of my main reasons for wanting to leave the EU was I felt that um, the fishing industry had been done down so badly. And Brian explained his viewpoint with memorable verve. Yes, he did. <laughs> I loved his scathing reference to the middle-class journalists as triangle toast eaters. Triangle toast eaters. And many of us, I think, will remember the district nurse, Holly, who spoke so movingly mm. about the numbers of people dying needlessly because they weren't able to get the hospital appointments they needed during the pandemic. She alerted us really early on in the summer of 2020 to the way elderly people were being discharged from hospitals where nosocomial, one of Alison's favourite words, yeah. <laughs> nosocomial infections were rife and transferred to care homes where, of course, COVID spread with devastating effects. And who could forget, forget the adorable Robert Styler, who oh, contacted really? Planet Normal to tell them how he was being barred from visiting his beloved wife of 60 years, Josephine, in her care home because of those rigid, inhumane lockdown rules keeping loved ones apart from each other. It was down to Planet Normal that Robert and Josephine were finally able to get together one last time for a meal and to sing a song together. Mm. And that meant the world to Robert. I cried at that programme, I really did. Mm, you did too. And there was the memorable interview with Sir Richard Dearlove, and that was just on the second rocket trip about COVID-19 originating in Wuhan. Actually, that did go viral, and it was heard right across the world, and it put Planet Normal very firmly on the map right from the start. <laughs> Another achievement, it was listening to Planet Simmer Normal. Down, you. <laughs> it was listening to Planet Normal that motivated former Brexit Minister Lord Frost to quit the cabinet, registering his opposition to yet more lockdown restrictions. We saved Christmas, Liam. We saved Christmas. <laughs> we saved Christmas. Oxford University's Sunetra Gupta, of course, the co-author of the legendary Great Barrington Declaration, which made so much sense, is a valued friend of Planet Normal and one of today's special guests, along with Sir Graham Brady, leader of the Tory 1922 Backbench Committee. One thing I'm absolutely sure of, what has kept Alison and Liam going through the bumps and knocks that they've received this past two years has been the constant stream of emails and support Absolutely. Absolutely. from Planet yeah. Normal Our listeners. Friends. Liam told me, we have the very best listeners. They're loyal, they're engaged, they're courageous, and they're normal, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why tonight we want to hear directly from you. Throughout tonight's event, we'll be stopping to take questions from the audience. For those of you joining us at home, you can submit your questions using the chat bar on the right-hand side of your screen, which will come through to the iPad that Alison and Liam have got. And have for I everybody here in the room... Have I got it? Everybody oh, in the room there. with us. We oh, find the iPad. It's very important. It's under there. Oh, there it is. OK. And uh, if you're listening at home, um, if you're here, just raise your hand if you'd have a question. Wait for a microphone to get to you before you actually ask your question. So that would be great. So here we go again then. Let's fasten our seatbelts and let's head once again for Planet Normal. Hey. Crikey, Alison, I do believe this is the 100th episode of our Planet Normal podcast. When we launched two years ago, Liam, I didn't even know what a podcast was. Now I am one. The world's gone mad since our first voyage. Planet Earth, it's completely overrun with triangle toast eaters. 
there's nothing for it, co-pilot. We must be brave and do our duty. We must boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Orthogonal to the orthodoxy! And welcome to this, the 100th edition of Planet Normal. It's such a special occasion. We're so glad to be here in the Soho Hotel in central London with all of you in the audience and all of you on the live stream and indeed all of you catching up on the regular podcast. Thanks so much to Sue Cook, broadcasting legend, journalistic icon for introducing us. I must say, Copilot, being introduced by Sue Cook, it's a bit like you being asked to co-write a column with David Cassidy. (laughs) Or, or, Or was it David Essex? That was, that was a bit oh, yeah. later, wasn't it? It is the 100th anniversary. It's so good to be together, isn't it? In person with Yay. fellow Planet Normal sisters, brothers and sisters in arms. And I should reveal, that you won't believe this, but it's true. It must be. Trust me, I'm a journalist. That this is actually the first time that Alison and I have ever been physically in the same room when recording any one of our 100 editions so far of Planet Normal, which is a tribute to uh, our technical staff and Alison's ability to master her computer (laughs) some of the time. (laughs) I am clicking it, you fool! (laughs) When we look back, we've had some absolutely amazing guests, haven't we? We've had ministers, we've had peers of the realm, we've had intelligence officers... But we've also had teachers, doctors, frontline NHS staff, though in some cases we had to we had to superimpose special effects over their voice because they were literally worried for their jobs about being identified. We've had everyone from Holly, the district nurse, to to Brian, the fisherman, to good people. We had Robert Styler supporting his wonderful wife, Josephine. We had Nick Stokes supporting his wonderful wife, Joy. So many ordinary, decent normal people contacting Planet Normal and becoming guests in their own right. Tonight, of course, we have two of our most distinguished previous Planet Normal stairways. We have Dr. Sunetra Gupta, Oxford epidemiologist extraordinaire, a brave and principled woman, a scientist to her fingertips. During lockdown, in her quiet, courageous way, she became something of a national treasure, I think. Yes, here, here. <laughs> And then we have Sir Graham Brady, a proud Northern grammar boy who so effortlessly outclasses so many at the top of his party. (laughs) He was a shining light of decency and common sense over recent years. He is, of course, 1922 committee chairman, the letter holder in chief, the man who knows more than anyone, more than Carrie Johnson even, (laughs) about that crucial subject, just how long will Boris Johnson last as our prime minister? But for the opening 15 minutes, co-pilot, as we always do, we're going to begin this voyage as every other Planet Normal voyage with a chat between the two of us about the events of the week, the local elections, the Queen's speech, the latest in the insufferable scandals of Partygate, Leggate, Currygate, Day 13, (laughs) Korma Karma. I love that phrase in your column today. But before we get even to that, Alison, let me ask you, and please answer briefly and crisply if you you will, (laughs) just like your written prose... How happy are you, 100 episodes on, that I convinced you to launch Planet Normal? I was very drunk in the back of the taxi, wasn't I? <laughs> I, was just, I have a dim memory of you persuading me that, um, 
We came from similar backgrounds. I was struggling earlier on to find a better word to describe us than arsey, but none came to me. So <laughs> I, that we, um, I think that, you know, those of us who've been honourable members of the Awkward Squad this past two years, I do I do feel we're vindicated now. You know, we um, it's been a it's been a bumpy old ride, Halligan, hasn't it? You know, there've been moments when it was we were under a lot of different pressures. We won't go into all that, but it was very, very tough, wasn't it? Um, I found a quote. I'm very I knew I'd be very emotional being here with all of you, and I am. But Mark Twain says, How easy it is to make people believe a lie, and how hard it is to undo that work again. Um and that's the work we've been doing, I think, and I think everyone here all of our helpers. We've had so many people helping us, haven't we, to interrogate that data, which they gave us. Yeah, so I think that's what we did. We tried to uh, find the truth, didn't we, or whatever approach of the truth. And I never ceased to be moved, sometimes too much actually, by the loss of life for the young. We had um, Nadim Zahawi the other day, the education secretary, the first government minister to say uh, it was a mistake to close the schools. That was a big moment. That was a big moment. We have here my friend Molly Kingsley, who founded with two other mothers, us for them. I remember Molly getting in touch when she sent me a photo, I don't know if you remember it, of little children in the playground all sitting in individual circles like they were part of some sort of North Korean retraining camp. And she couldn't unsee that image. And I think that's... Kim Jong-un would deny that phrase. He's (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, so um, it's been very emotional and we've never cease to be inspired by the stories that have come in, some of them heartbreaking, some of them absolutely hilarious and defiant. You know, people just absolutely... And I wondered for a while, where's the British spirit gone? You know, you know the, you know the phrase I miss that's gone from our language is when you'd go somewhere and you'd be late and a lovely man would say, oh, go on then, go on, go on, get in, go on then. <laughs> We used to be that people, didn't we? People we too officious, do you think? Too officious, the... Um, Box-ticking. The, you know, the Warden Hodges in Dad's Army, you know, no, you can't do that, you can't visit your dying mother because, you know, she might catch COVID. She's actually dying, you know. So all that, you know, and I hope to God we're coming out of that now and I hope we have played um, our part in just pushing back against that narrative, you know. I think we have a, a little bit aided all the time by our wonderful Planet Normal listeners who email us. Um, and the quality of the emails is just incredible, from incre- brilliant one-liners, or well, you know all about them because you read them in Alison's column all the time, <laughs> to, to, to re- really, really detailed um, explanations. What do I, so of- what do I say to you? Now, everyone will know this. As T.S. Eliot said, immature poets borrow, mature poets steal. So I steal with absolutely, yeah, yeah. Carry on. We'd get long explanations from really incredibly qualified people, or from, you know, people who we couldn't quote and we had to massively respect their privacy because if we didn't, they would lose their jobs. People took huge risks in what they emailed us and the information that they gave us. And it was really humbling. I've been a journalist quite a long time under various different guises. And I never thought a a podcast uh, on uh, uh, a broadsheet newspaper would be 
would open up the door to so much investigative journalism and so much what we call digging in journalism. Uh, and it really has. It's really been an eye-opener. But this is Planet Normal, Alison, so maybe we should talk a little bit about the events of the week, yeah. those local yeah. elections. Yeah. Something I wanted to point out is that uh, Labour were up... By, in terms of share of the vote, it's really hard to understand all the local election results because, of course, lots of councils didn't vote and and the turnout was less than 30%, which I think is the real depressing headline of the whole thing, that the turnout was so low at such a pivotal moment for our country, indeed, at any time. But Labour were up six points in terms of national vote share among those who voted to 35, and the Tories were down six to 30 Interesting, though, that Blair in 1995, two years before he obviously won a huge 179th seat landslide, he wasn't on 35% where Labour are now. He was on 47%. In fact, Corbyn won 35% uh, in, wow. okay. in 2018. So, sorry, 2017. So it does seem, in the end, don't you think that Boris just about got away with it? He did just enough. Graham Brady is just in your eye like, I can't believe that he's here. My God, what, that's proper power, isn't it? Proper power. Imagine everyone in the whole country, even the Prime Minister. So how many is it, Graham? I'm not telling you, Prime Minister. Um, it does we've, we've seem got, that... We've got ropes to tie yeah, up, so we'll have to we, tell we, us. We've got the it? Planet Normal thumb screws to put on to Graham Brady. Um, um, it does seem that he's done just enough to not trouble Sir Graham Brady's briefcase too much since the local elections. Yeah, but it was expectation management, wasn't it? Because those of you who listened to Planet Normal last week, we were saying, how bad is it going to be for the Tories? And that was quite... Of course clever. they do. These are the super fans. They come from everywhere. I know, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know if everyone's caught up, caught up with it yet. I know some people say that they use it as their bedtime story, which always makes me... <laughs> listening to you chuntering on about quantitative easing. I don't know Well, if you can get a word in. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so the Tories... Um, uh, lost 487 mm. uh, councillors. They lost control of 11 councils. Labour looked to be doing a bit better, didn't they? Because they took uh, Westminster and Wandsworth, which was a great iconic for 40 years, was this iconic conservative council delivering very, very good value for money. We'll ask uh, Graham later, but it was very interesting to me that quite a lot of um, conservative candidates refused to call themselves conservative and were describing themselves as local yeah, conservative. Local um, but Labour didn't do that well. And I think they got 22 um, councillors in England and they certainly didn't make a- anything back with the Red Wall at all. So I think it, it was um, it was a very mixed picture. I think the Lib Dems, um, I always think they're led by someone called Tim, but you know, I'm sure it's not true now. Is it? What's that man called? Not Tim. Not the, the other Ed one. David. Ed Davies. Not him. Not Tim. I think all leaders of Liberal Democrats should be called Tim on principle. Uh, but they did And all well. Green leaders should be called Jonathan. Yes, exactly. He, him. Yes, he, him. But um, the. Uh, but they. Um, I think they're. You know, they're looking as though they may be holding the balance of power yep. and did the best that that, that they've done since since Nick Clegg. But as you said, they're Liam, up two to nineteen percent, which isn't huge, but it's better than most people expected. People expected them to get hammered because they tried to reverse Brexit, but yes. actually they did pretty well, stealing quite taking quite a lot of votes from Conservatives rather than from Labour. Yes, but I think. Um, I think, because obviously I write my Telegraph column, I think most of my lot stayed home. They just sat on their hands. They're refusing to vote. Some of them write and say, uh, we're not going and we're not voting for them again until Boris has gone. That's quite quite a substantial tranche. Other people 
maybe some of them in this room, are so disgusted with the authoritarian behaviour of the political class in general that they just want to vote for anybody else, you know. I mean, you know, sometimes they write and say, we should be the Prime Minister and the Chancellor of the Exchequer. What could possibly go wrong? Well, we'd, we'd row for a start and then uh, <laughs> my people would brief against your people. And I'd say, when are you going to leave? <laughs> it's been so long. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that it was a very mixed picture. But as you said, I think the biggest story is that it was a very low turnout. I think there's massive disillusion with the political system. I think, um, I don't know what you guys think, but I just think like we've had sort of two years of bloody COVID and now it's like, you know, welcome to the, you know, cost of living crisis. You think, can we not have like, can we not like have six weeks in between? It is relentless. And I think there is a sort of disbelief about that. And moving on to the other big event of the week, of course, was the the Queen's speech, not delivered, not for the first, not you know, not delivered this time, sadly, by Her Majesty the Queen, just the crown sitting on its own little chair, Prince Charles delivering it for the first time as a sort of harbinger of, of the years to come. Now, it, um, the Queen's speech, I thought the first sentence was OK. So this is, my government will give priority to growing and strengthening the economy and uh, addressing the cost of living for families. And that was it. And then, uh, you know, you will know much more, Liam will know much more about this than I do. But then it was like, then it was like, yeah, we're going to do a lot about cost of living for families. And what we're going to do is we're going to let you have a referendum on whether Dennis and Eileen at number 37 are allowed to build a loft extension. <laughs> now, that's going to that's hugely reduce the gas bill, isn't it, really? I felt after the uh, spring statement on the 24th of March that the government had done far too little for... Um, people yeah, who are struggling. I, I don't think much of the political and media class really understand the extent of this cost of living crisis at the moment. Um, yeah, there, there, there are members of that class in this room, I think, who, who do. But I think for the most part, they don't. Um, I think that the, the headline of the day for me was from a rather nerdy but extremely influential and credible think tank called the National Institute for Economic and Social Research. These guys are not party hacks. And uh, the director of that, Dr. Jadid Chadder, yeah. who's a very interesting man, former Cambridge academic, um, he's predicting you know, a million and a half families falling into what they call destitution, which is less than 150 quid a week uh, to meet the bills. I think that you're going to get you know, proper non-payment of energy bills. I think mm. you may be, be in a situation where the government is taking over energy companies. I don't say this with any uh, relish. Uh, I don't wish mm. to be alarmist, but I do think these kind of things could happen. And for the spring statement in the 24th of March to have nothing at all, pretty much, for um, uh, lower income and vulnerable households, an increase in benefits by 3.1% for the coming year at a time when the government then was predicting inflation of 7.4%, and now the Bank of England's infl uh, uh, predicting inflation of 10%. Inflation's already 10%. To tell somebody on low income that inflation might reach 10% soon, that's a sick joke. Yeah, fuel is 45% more expensive. You've, you've been Food saying is 30% more expensive. You've I mean, been come saying on. it. You've been, we you've been we saying undermine it our time. faith in our national statistics. I'm not saying that the ONS don't do a good job. The ONS do a really good job. The ONS is one of the premier statistical bodies in the world. It's just the methodology that their excellent economists are being told to implement is not the right methodology. They're not measuring the right things. But I feel like we're 
you know, from obviously from talking to you and learning learning a lot. I, has, I hesitate to say, but that's Can you say true. That again? Yeah. <laughs> I learn I learn a lot from you. Has anyone mentioned I haven't? You haven't mentioned yet. I didn't pass my maths A level. Well, you? you always mention it. Why but I have learned a lot from you, and I just feel at the moment. I feel like do you remember that film Von Ryan's Express, where you know the tr- the, the express train is you know is out of control. You know someone's cut the brake cables. We know it's going to go into an, an abyss. It feels like that's where we are now with this cost of living crisis, and the government's you know debating whether to have sort of cheddars or watsits in the buffet car. I mean, it's literally you think why are they not? Why haven't they done something? Why we need an emergency budget, don't we? We need what do we need? Um, I, I know I keep banging on about this, but you know, once I found it out, I can't let it go. So we have the five percent VAT on yep. energy bills. Yep. We have twenty-three to twenty-five percent green renewables on electricity bills. On electricity bills, which other countries do not the have. The Germans have scrapped them even, and the, their greens are in power. Yeah. So you know. So I just think. That needs to go now. What are they? What are they thinking? And they're going to have to do something, aren't they? Because it's going to get. I think it's going to get really ugly. Actually, I think it's going to get. And um, you know, we had the other day Susanna Reid confronting Boris with the elderly lady who was just to save heating bills was riding around on a bus. Well, that's going to be that's going to be every week from now on, isn't it? There's going to be some terrible story. So I don't understand. I just am baffled by the avoidance. Of this issue, what? Why? Why even, won't they? Even, why won't they? Why won't Rishi? Why won't they do something? I, I, I think. I think. I think it's a bit of a virility symbol. With all due respect to, to, to a young chancellor, to stick to his pledges uh, on his spending limits, but you know what happens when you have a lot of inflation is nominal tax revenues go up. You know the government's getting a lot more money because fuel has gone up. The price we pay for our petrol and diesel on the forecourt. There is at least some money there when much of the Western world is having to spend a bit more money and borrow a bit more money in order to meet this what these one-off payments because this isn't a cost of just a cost of living crisis. It's a cost of lockdown crisis yeah. and it's a cost of war crisis. These are both, you know, very unusual events, the lockdown in particular. And, you know, I, I'm... You know, people that have read my column in The Telegraph, which I've been writing for over 20 years now. I've, I've read it twice. Um, you, in all that time. <laughs> you, you, you read the same one twice. Because <laughs> it was the Christmas one about, you know, <laughs> shopping. Um, in the biz- Come on, be realistic. I, I've been a very fiscally small-c conservative person over many years because I thought during the age of Gordon Brown, a lot of people were having the wool pulled over their eyes about the state of our public finances. And it turns out our public finances were a lot worse than they looked because of things like the private finance initiative and because public sector pension bills were off balance sheet and all the rest of it. But in the situation we are now in, we've got to be innovative with the public sector balance sheet. And we've got to, we've got to start using our ability to raise finance and spend it wisely in order to maintain political stability and and keep growth going that means that doesn't mean you throw out all lessons of economics that we've learned over many years i don't think we face a kind of 1976 imf crisis type situation many of you in this room will remember it even i remember it crikey um it's when i first started getting interested in economics back in 1976 house with few books um mm. Mm. but I, I i do think even you know even the kind of the people on the more traditional wings of the Conservative backbenches are saying to Rishi Sunak, you have to lower taxes. You have to. Yeah. 
to lower taxes at the right moment is not a fiscally imprudent thing to do. It's actually, in many ways, the right thing to do. We're meant to be in the middle of a V-shaped recovery, right? And now most economists, though they don't always say it, they're saying there's probably going to be a recession. And we've turned on that sixpence literally in 10 to 12 weeks, not least since Putin invaded Ukraine. And oil prices spiked, gas prices spiked, food prices spiked, the price of fertilizer spiked. Suddenly everyone's understanding the, the inescapable geography that is the Black Sea and the Dardanelles and the grain funnels. Don't you all wish you did O-level history? Oh, most of us did. And that's why we listen to to Planet Normal. Well, you told me, didn't you, amongst the many nugget, Halligan nuggets, was that a um, huge percentage of the world's fertiliser comes from that part of the world. Yeah, from Russia, Belarus, um, they, between them, export about 50% of the world's fertiliser. And I, and I could see what this was doing because I live in the east of England and my son plays uh, rugby and a lot of his teammates are the sons of, of local farmers. And I've spent... You know, most of the last, the topic of conversation over the last six months, long before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, on those sidelines of those rugby matches and those football matches with farmers, has been the price of fertilizer just screaming upwards. And now we've got a shipping ban on most of Russia, and of course, Odessa and the Black Sea ports are no-go areas for military reasons. We can't get that very, very heavy potash stuff out and the cost of nitrogen oxide that you use to make other forms of fertilizer. So these are the three Fs that farmers need. Food, uh, they need finance, they need fuel, and they need fertilizer. And each of those has got a lot more expensive. And this is my fear. Uh, you know, there is there is a there is an energy price spike, but if the right people get in the right room and make the right agreement, you can bring down the price of energy overnight. If we do deal with the Saudis, the Iranians, you know, there is oil and gas knocking about that we can formalize and bring it onto global markets, uh, and we can bring down the price of oil and gas overnight with the right political and diplomatic manoeuvre if we really need to. You can't do that with food. No one in the world can just conjure up more food. Farmers in this country are planting less because of those three Fs. They're all more expensive. They're not literally going to bet the ranch. Ukraine isn't producing. <laughs> the fields of Ukraine are battlefields uh, ac across many parts of the country. They're not being sown with new crops. So we're locking in, I would say, high food price inflation for at least the next 12 to 18 months. And that's something that we can't solve at a summit with the Saudis in the room and the Iranians on the phone. That's why we're going off grid and you're teaching me how to shoot squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> Who, who's coming with us? It's going to be great. We can eat moss, can't we, off trees? It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Liam and I were talking the other day. It was quite, I don't know if we mentioned this on one of the podcasts. It was quite strange. We were waxing nostalgic, actually, about Tony Blair. Now, don't, don't jeer me. I know it's become very fashionable to jeer. But I'm talking about the pre-Messianic, did I mention I was John the Baptist, Tony Blair. <laughs> the, this is the, there was a moral purpose and a seriousness yeah. about that first Blair administration. And when you think about that front bench, there were some people, David Blunkett, Charles Clark, Mo Molum. Robin I mean, Cook. Some serious people. people. Serious Jack people. Straw. And now you ask yourself, what are the policies of the Conservative government or, indeed, the Labour Party, apart from a windfall tax on oil and gas? I can't think of any of these people's policies. seems to me we are bereft of substantial leadership. And that, you know, and that's why I do look back to when I interviewed Gordon Brown. It was um, 
It was very, very funny. Many years ago, I was working at the Daily Mail and Paul Dacre, the, how could we say it, somewhat intimidating editor, said, Alison, I want you to go and interview the Prime Minister and bring out his human side. <laughs> Gordon Brown's human side, you know, good luck with that. But, the, you know, he was a person... He wanted the Chancellor's kidney on his desk <laughs> by the next morning. <laughs> but he wanted... Oh, God, anyway, I don't talk to you about terrible interviews with politicians. But he wanted, you felt he wanted to improve yeah, the country. Yeah. He wanted to improve the chances for children. He, you know, there was whatever you thought of it, wouldn't have agreed with him on all the politics, but there was a, there was a substance to these people. Yep. I now just feel, what do these, what, are, what do they, what do they want apart from surviving to the next month? And I do think something that's very interesting moment at the moment because we talked a lot about whether Boris can survive but I think now there's a question about can Keir Starmer survive because on the way down here on the train I was reading a New Statesman piece which was basically saying how much longer are we going to have to put up with this technocrat lawyer as the Labour leader so he may be the next in on the block what, who, what, win, who wins seats in London but outside of London in England gets a lower rate ranking in the local elections than Jeremy Corbyn Alison, we need to move on. Do we? Because right. okay. we want to hear from George. <gasps> now, we yes. all know who okay. George is. Yes. I have to read this out. George is a senior source within NHS England with full <laughs> access to the internal data. We don't disclose his or her identity. We're very confident of the authenticity of George's <laughs> statistics, and that's why we report them. But by definition, we can't independently verify these numbers because George gives them to us before they're published, if indeed they're published at all. Ladies and gentlemen, before Alison gives us the latest update from George, can I just reveal something really quite exciting? George is among us. <gasps> I'm not going to tell you if George is in this room or if George is on the live stream, but Alison and I know where George is, and I think we should indeed give George a proper round of applause. Yay. So you'll all know that the, the podcast, the, 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 a lot of the work we did was underpinned by having this remarkable source with NHS England. Um, and I would see, you know, uh, Hugh Pym, the pallbearer on the BBC, saying, here I am in this overwhelmed ICU. Hugh would say he's doing his job to the best of his yes, ability. Yes, he would say he's doing his job, but indeed. But I would then, I would email George and I would say, this hospital he was visiting was it indeed overwhelmed? And George would say, well, not really. And it's about the same as it was in December 2017. So we were always getting this immensely valuable perspective. They also had tricks as well. They'd always, George pointed out, they'd always film in the hospitals on a Monday because there'd been no discharges over the weekend. So we're deliberately picking um you know, the, the the worst possible moments. Again, the journalists concerned would deny that. And they would say it's just completely coincidental. That they it completely coincidental. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. I um, <laughs> I was saying to Shanetra Gupta earlier. Maybe I'm just a very naive person. I I used to think that the, the public information that was paid for by the public would be given to the public in an honest and an open way. I don't think that's quite what's happened. Uh, during during the past two years, well, there are a hundred thousand undiagnosed cancer cases wandering around outside because they weren't allowed. They and I think that is indeed a Macmillan cancer That is figure. a Macmillan cancer so figure. Look at, my learned, look at my learned friend here. Um, 
Yes. So we've all learned about the different the, the different things that there were people admitted to hospital with COVID. We were given those figures, but there were also people being admitted with other ailments who tested positive for COVID and then they were counted as a COVID admission. And then there were many people who caught COVID while in hospital. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what do we call the hospital acquired infections with a word that begins with N? Nosocomial. <laughs> I've taught you so much. Uh, yes, and they also counted as they also counted as, as admissions. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm missing my card. Let me just find my card. Liam, fill in, darling. Fill in. Just, just do your do your best. Hang on. Sorry, I've got hundreds of cards here somewhere. The thing about when when we when we reported on what George said, we would literally get, I mean, dozens and dozens of emails from NHS staff, pretty much standing up the stories, the the facts that we were putting across. So it's not as if we just relied on, on, on one source at all. I found it now. So I thought that for old time's sake, because we don't really need to do any COVID updates anymore, thank God, but for old time's sake, we thought we'd get George to give us the latest update. I have checked the dashboard for the latest data, which is as submitted yesterday, Wednesday. There are currently just over 7,000 COVID patients in English NHS hospitals. Of those, only 38% are being treated primarily for COVID. Um, So let's just pause there, ladies and gentlemen. This is an astonishing thing, really. Today, there are only 2,500 actual COVID patients in all of England. Now, the nosocomial infections still represent around 30% of all patients diagnosed after admission. And it's been at that level, George says, for around six months. Uh, George also comments, it demonstrates that hospitals are still significant drivers of COVID transmission. And look, I'm not a scientist, but I think hospitals were always driving transmission of COVID. I think they were were probably one of the biggest sources. All the places we weren't allowed to go pubs, airlines, they weren't the drivers of of COVID transmission. But George continues, the numbers are falling rapidly week on week, as rapidly as they have fallen at any time since the vaccines first started to be rolled out. Planet Normal listeners may remember that we reached a floor of around 6,000 patients in hospital with COVID each day throughout the second half of last year. It looks at the moment like we are on course to get below that only 5% of hospital beds in England are now occupied by a COVID patient. That proportion has halved in the space of the last month. There are now, this is incredible, just over 100 confirmed COVID patients in ICU beds in the whole of England. This equates to less than one patient per hospital. That's the lowest level since this time last year. And this is something we've been banging on about about on the podcast. And something I hope we're going, Liam and I are going to go on is to talk about NHS reform. Hospital discharges remain a huge problem across all regions. Weekdays, slightly better than weekends, but not by much. At the weekends, listen to this, around 70 pa- 70% of patients who are ready to be sent home are not able to be discharged because they have nowhere to go. That's because there's a care home crisis. In numerical terms, it is pretty consistently around 12,000 hospital beds per day, which are not 
available to new patients. So every time you turn on the TV news and you wonder why the ambulances are backing up, this is because the system is completely blocked. Um, yes, they're not available to new patients because they are occupied by someone who has recovered but cannot be discharged. So this is our NHS. It's, it's got to change, hasn't it? It does. And that's going to be a big theme of our discussions going forward. Um, we both want free at the point of use healthcare, but I think as an excellent recent guest, Tim Knox demonstrated on, a, on an episode with his um, comparative study across countries, we're not getting a bang from our buck from the NHS. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London... And from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this and click follow so you don't miss an update. It's time for our first distinguished guest live. Shinetra Gupta is a professor of theoretical epidemiology at Oxford University. She's a world-class scientist. She also emerged during the pandemic as someone prepared to question the government across-the-board lockdown policies while highlighting the collateral damage. For that, Professor Gupta was subject to some pretty nasty criticism and disdain, but she kept her natural poise and dignity throughout, and she <laughs> earned the respect of many, many people across the UK. Above all, of course, Professor Gupta beat Alison and I at our own game because she is this podcast phrase-maker-in-chief. <laughs> it was Shinetra Gupta who captured the spirit of Planet Normal coining our modus operandi, this rocket of right thinking's natural direction of travel, which is, of course, orthogonal to the orthodoxy. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Professor Shinetra. many great moments in the last two years but one did come recently when I said to Shinetra you know because obviously I've had to learn so much from her and just generally to kind of cope with what's been going on and I said to you do you think I could do GCSE epidemiology and you said Alison I think we could get you through the A level <laughs> <laughs> Just on orthogonal to the orthodox. Yeah. <laughs> I remember it, it came out of my mouth. I like the word orthogonal. And then, you know, ortho orthodoxy just suggested itself. And I said it and I thought, oh, how naff. Oh, no. <laughs> no. And then, of course, um, thank you for redeeming it. We've been sent T-shirts by Planet Normal listeners. orthogonal to the orthodox. <laughs> Um, it's a far more elegant way of saying RC squad, isn't it, really, I think. Um, from, obviously, we spoke to you first in September 2020, when I think you were quite shell-shocked by what was going on. Um, as Liam said, Shinetra is one of the world... You are queen flu, aren't you? You know it, you know everything there is that you do. You don't, don't well, look... I'm trying to make a flu vaccine. Yes, you're trying that to make... That doesn't make me... No, but you know a lot wow. about the flu. So what I want to ask you is... 
this was your subject, epidemiology, and suddenly it was the big story in the world. And yet principles which you knew of your subject stating those principles suddenly made you a right-wing conspiracy theorist, didn't they? How has it felt to be a professor of epidemiology during this pandemic? Well, um, as you say, some very fundamental concepts have been ignored. And um, some concepts which are perhaps less accessible but should be known by epidemiologists um, have either been kind of willfully ignored or it turns out that many epidemiologists perhaps haven't actually done their A-level maths (laughs) (laughs) or have forgotten some of it. Um, How how many of those, okay, all these colleagues, all these epidemiologists on SAGE, they know what you know. They know what you know. What were they doing? I think it's important not to go after SAGE and the way that um, people are going after them because it's, it's just the other side of the coin of revering them. Essentially, I think what SAGE did was offer a testable hypothesis uh, about what might happen well, concerning the effects of lockdowns. That hypothesis was tested and proven to be incorrect. I think we should leave it at that. I really think it's okay. wrong to go after them. I don't. I think certainly Neil Ferguson is an extremely intelligent man, and conversations we had early on was very much about us holding different ideas, mm. having competing hypotheses, mm. and to wait to see. You know, only time can tell. But you could equally well fit the data to the available. I mean, fit a model to the available data, which suggested, which would tell you that. Everyone who had died, would die had already died. So there were yes. these two extremes. And what I was trying to say is that we cannot actually tell where we are at in that whole range of scenarios until we have a sense of how many people have already been infected. And so then what we did in my lab was try and find that out by developing a test to see if people had antibodies to Yes. Um, SARS-CoV-2. Unfortunately, first of all, we couldn't get a hold of the right samples. And secondly, mm. that is not, uh, unlike flu, um, that's not necessarily a good indicator of how many people have actually had Was lockdown SARS-CoV-2. ever going to stop COVID-19 in its tracks? Well, that again was a hypothesis. And we didn't know the answer to that then. Um, so that was something there was a big question mark over. What I think there was no question mark over was whether lockdowns would cause enormous damage. And so what I think went wrong is that people didn't consider that part of it, that we knew that lockdowns would cause a lot of damage. And you've now set up Global Collateral, haven't you, which is a a, a research network trying to demonstrate uh, and quantify the extent of damage that lockdown did. It's very important to maintain that record because any decisions we take in the future should be set against that experience. I wanted to ask you in in the short time that we've got about the public inquiry, because I think if it wasn't for the war in Ukraine, the cost of living crisis, leg gate, then we'd all be absolutely focused on this public inquiry. We don't even know when it's going to start. We don't even know the terms of reference, really. A few weeks ago, we spoke to Mark Harper, who's one of the most plugged in 
Tory backbenchers, he, he you know, was one of the leading lights of the COVID research group. He told us most of what he knows, but it's still quite sketchy, the details. I mean, you're, you're right, Imperial came up with a bunch of scenarios. They would say that the press alighted on the most uh, extreme of those scenarios. But I think you've always done very well, if I may say so, the academic that you are, to try and maintain some decorum in what was a politically very, very highly charged environment. And um, I think you did very, very well as an academic to maintain your poise when you were being um, criticised publicly in in such a unfair way. I mean, you were being called... Well, it continues. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but you're, you're very much among friends here. There's a huge amount of admiration for you in, in this room. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Jeanette, Jeanette, Liam, can, can, Jeanette just said shamed and intimidated yeah. is how you described it, wasn't it? You were intimidated by people. Can I just ask you what, what you think the public inquiry... What can we get from the public inquiry... Is it, do we have a chance of um, making sure or trying to make sure it doesn't just become a political finger-pointing, chest-beating exercise? Oh, if they'd locked down one day earlier, a million people would have been saved. You can see the way it's, it, it, it could go. How do we keep it on the straight and narrow? How do we use this public inquiry to learn lessons, to provide ourselves with a manual, a handbook going forward of how we respond and react to the next one? Well, I wish I knew what the answer to that was. I, I would very much I hope that the public inquiry will involve a broader selection of voices. I mean, essentially what happened to me over the last two years is that I was shut down. And um, I'd like to think that perhaps we've the lesson to be learned from that um, is that we need a much broader representation of voices and a, a, a different approach to analysing the data. And rather than, again, pointing fingers mm. at people, we need, to, we need to change the way we... Just our language, mm. our vocabulary mm. and our language has to change. We have to stop blaming people. This is not a blame game. This mm. is how do we learn as a society... Mm. As and the world will be watching. Population. Britain has a huge policy yes. role. Mm -hmm. We've got some of the top scientists. Absolutely. We've got mm -hmm. you know a very vibrant political debate. A huge a huge media. We are on a really strict time schedule here. But let's just take one question from the audience from Shinetra Gupta and Alison can find a, a question on the yeah. iPad from one of our guests who is joining us on the live stream. There's a gentleman at, at the back. Sure. The, the, uh, my, my my question is: Which country do you think got it right? As far I'm as... I'm going to say Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> Just outline that a little bit, Sinatra. Uh, well, well, I think that... I think Sweden got it right because they didn't lock down in any sense and they, they managed to preserve... I mean, what are, as I said, what was the one thing that we knew? That lockdowns would cause enormous distress. Now, Sweden didn't lock down. We can see the results of that now in their excess deaths. Um, did Sweden get everything right? No, of course not. There were care home deaths in, which could have been, perhaps been avoided. Um, there is this notion that Sweden sort of almost, um, you know, managed to achieve social distancing without prescribing it. I don't think that's why they got it right. I think they got it right because they avoided the specific harms of lockdown. 
And Sweden didn't close ever close schools for exactly. under 16s, yeah. did they? So Abhorrent We practice. closed our schools for longer than any other country except Italy, and I think that's absolutely shameful. And that, I think, was to do with trade union pressure for adults to be safe rather than mm-hmm. children. Uh, which, of course, the unions would deny. Which, of course, the unions would deny. <laughs> <laughs> He's on this stuff, isn't he? Look at this. <laughs> He's never normally this polite, I tell you. Uh, this is from an Alison with a single L. How could anyone think it was okay to spend two billion a month on test and trace when so many people were and are unable to get the treatment they need for other conditions? I mean, this is this is another. What, what was the use of testing? Did you think? I mean, was there was there? A I mean, I, I did think that test and trace was unlikely to work. Again, that was my. <laughs> scientific opinion. Um, we can think of a different phrase, uh, right, that's unlikely to work. That includes um, the word pile. I, in the no, disrespect, no disrespect but meant but to the scientists but it's, but it's, No, but it's fine, Professor Gupta, because it only costs £39 billion. Well, this is so the problem. If it were free, then you'd say, OK, yeah. you know, let's see if it works. Mm. But the fact that it was going to cost that much... Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, well, as you said, we're facing this lockdown, an economic crisis. It's a, That's what we spend on defence every year. Exactly. <laughs> so th- that, I thought, was unconscionable. But but just quickly, COVID will be back next winter. It's uh, it's now an endemic uh, seasonal virus. Is that correct? We're just, we'll just incorporate it into the other... Like the other four circulating coronaviruses, which most hopefully we'll never have heard of or never will hear of because they don't cause many deaths. No. Because you, once you have had any of these viruses once, you're protected, not against infection, but against severe disease and death. Mm. And that's where we were headed always with COVID and, and um, we've got that. Professor Goetze, just before we move, move on and, and bring on, our, 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 of course, our, our next guest... Um, I wanted to just ask you briefly, you did create the Great Barrington Declaration with Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford, um, one of the best professors of epidemiology in the world, another world-class epidemiologist, Martin Kordoff of Harvard. What an incredible threesome. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of people were... Um, attracted to the Great Barrington Declaration, not only because of the kind of people who backed it, and of course you've got um, best part of a million signatories now, but also because you emphasised focused protection. We knew by then that COVID, for the most part, uh, or overwhelmingly, in fact, you can correct me if I'm wrong, impacted older people, people with medical conditions. So your thought was help people to shield themselves if they want to and if they choose to, um, putting the authority of the state, the resources of the state behind those shielding efforts of that focused group uh, with them volunteering to shield if they want to and the rest of us get on with our lives. Again, you were disdained. You were called scientifically illiterate. Uh, You didn't get nearly as much um, broadcast media coverage as I think you should have given your world-class status uh, in this field and the three of you. Where's the Great Barrington Declaration now? Are some of your peers within the scientific community coming round to it? Could it form part of this public inquiry? Well, I think uh, many of the sentiments expressed by my peers now are 
um, you know, almost identical. They mapped directly onto mm-hmm. the Great Barrington Declaration, mm. which basically was offering a solution to the problem of we don't know what lockdowns might do to stop COVID. We do know they're going to cause harm. So what's the solution? What's a robust solution? Well, let's protect the vulnerable, mm. because that's another thing we know is that a subset of the population is vulnerable. So let's protect them. I mean, that's the best down, we can do. Looking down a whole population is sort of medieval, isn't it? I mean, yes. What happened? <laughs> it's, it's medieval, but we also, I mean, from day one, we knew that the person who wasn't able to sell toys on the pavement in New Delhi was going to die of starvation. Mm. We knew that. It wasn't maybe, maybe. It was, yes, this is happening now, that the child in a city child who, who can't, lives in a dysfunctional family, gets their only meal at school, isn't going to get that meal, isn't going to be monitored. We knew that. So the solution, the only solution we could think of was, to the best of our abilities, to protect the vulnerable. Now, many people are now coming around to that idea, but for some reason they've decided they don't support the Great Barrington Declaration. Whilst pinching its ideas. Mm. Steady, Eddie. Yeah. I mean, look, That's the idea accuse, is... what you accuse me of. That, you're that much, you're much sound... too polite. You're the most no, polite but... woman in the world. That idea is not... I mean, it's not some stroke of genius. It's what we've always done. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that people are now wanting to do what we've always done. Yes. But they still want to have... They want this polarisation yes. between the Great Barrington Declaration and the Zero Covid. They want that polarisation and they want to position themselves somewhere yes. in between. I think that, I don't we've noticed why. there's an awful lot of people at the moment who never wanted the schools to be closed. Have we noticed how many they grow by the day, the number of people who were arguing furiously on television for schools to be closed, but now never wanted them to be closed, Halligan? Never. 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 Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Shanetra Gupta. Hey. Now, Sir Graham Brady is, of course, the Conservative MP for Altrincham and Sale West, having entered the Commons in 1997. A former Shadow Minister for Europe, he found his true vocation as the chair of the 1922 Committee of Backbench Tory MPs. He's been in that role pretty much continuously since 2010, and as such, he receives and holds the confidential letters of no confidence in the Prime Minister. And only Sir Graham knows how close we really are to the magic number of 54, 15% of the parliamentary party that would trigger a vote on Boris Johnson's leadership. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had many, many guests on Planet Normal. Very, very few of them have received such a slew of uh, positive, uh, admiring emails as our next guest. Ladies and gentlemen, Sir Graham Brady MP. My usual fee. <laughs> I think it's all downhill from yeah. there. <laughs> Build them up, knock them down. <laughs> so, Graham, it's thank you for coming here. It's the you know it's the night of the Queen's speech debate, and um, uh, the chair of the Twenty Twos is among us. We are our cup runneth over. Um, Alison Pearson, it pains me to say, <laughs> came up we, with a great phrase. It was a fluke. Um, <laughs> When she said, when it came to um, saving Christmas, Boris Johnson didn't hold his nerve. He had his nerve held for him. 
and he had his nerve held for him by the likes of you, by the likes of the former chief whip, Mark Harper. Very, very serious senior parliamentarians who, you know, if if there was any justice in the world, would be in the cabinet, could be in the cabinet if they wanted to be. But you, Mark, other parliamentary colleagues, you decided to do, I think, what the opposition had failed to do. Why? Well, I agree with you about that, Liam. And one of the sad things over the two years of the COVID experience was that the opposition offered no opposition. And at every turn, uh, they would be saying, why didn't you do this sooner? Why aren't you doing it for longer? Why don't you lock down deeper? Why don't you have an earlier curfew? Whatever it might have been. And I just have a fundamental belief. The purpose of Parliament is to ask the difficult questions. The purpose of Parliament is to stand up for the liberty of the British people, not to acquiesce in that liberty being taken away. And I I think the story throughout the whole period, right the way from uh, March 2020, when we didn't know, and very interesting listening to Sinatra, we didn't know just how bad this Mm. thing was. And I don't think it was unreasonable that we did accede to the idea of locking the country down in the short term, but it was meant to be for three weeks. Three weeks. Yeah. And you know, people forget this. The three weeks stretched to three months, and all of this went on. We, we hadn't even had a, a single further vote in the House of Commons for six months. And that came because of the amendment that I tabled in September 2020. And I, just, I would just say this one thing, because I, I think it helps to redeem some of the people who were um, not always responding to the requests and the arguments that I was putting. Um, I, of course, that amendment was never put for technical reasons, mm. uh, but the government did concede the point mm. that Parliament should debate and vote mm. on these things. And by and large, it, it happened after then. Uh, but I had a conversation a couple of months ago with somebody who had been in the Department of Health at that time. And he said, I just want to tell you, Graham, we sat down saying, well, what should we do? And he said, we all looked at each other and said, well, the trouble is he's right, isn't he? We should have debates Mm. and votes on these things. But it's so easy when it doesn't happen. It's so easy for people to get caught up in the momentum of things. And I think that's what had happened. And it it should be the role of Parliament uh, to say, hang on, stop. We kind of lost our collective mind a little bit, didn't we? I I think we did. We have in the audience actually another Planet Normal guest, Laura Dodsworth, who wrote a fantastic book, State of Fear. <laughs> what, have you, what have you just won? Most popular book on planet or something, haven't you? <laughs> You're the most popular book on Planet Normal. But Graham, there was a very interesting contribution from a guy who co-founded the number 10 nudge unit, Simon Ruder, who kind of broke cover and said that there had been egregious use of fear and that modelling had been used for propagandising. You as a Conservative, shocked, really, that your government, your party... I mean, as you say, they'd all have done it, but that we could so easily slip into techniques which we would more have associated Uh, with totalitarian regimes. Deeply uncomfortable with it. Mm. And, you know, again, I think we should all think about this as a sort of wake-up call, that uh, when you create a nudge unit and say that it's there to try to encourage people to walk to school instead of getting a lift. Yes. That seems really benign. Yes. But the idea then that you have a nudge unit which is making people more frightened than they need to be in order to achieve uh, popular support for an extreme policy programme, 
that becomes uh, really very frightening. Uh, we've got a flat in Battersea, and throughout the whole thing, there was uh, somebody, a great philosopher, I don't know who it is, uh, who'd been chalking on every wall he could find. No TV, no panic. And I thought it was a, yeah. a, a brilliant contribution to the debate. Yeah. You're always in chalk. Can so we just make an exception for GB News, please? <laughs> <laughs> you weren't there then. <laughs> but but your colleagues, as Liam said, by and large, people on both sides of the house didn't put up much resistance to it, did they? They didn't say, why are we doing there this? There was very little resistance, all sorts of reasons. I think uh, there'd been a general election with a huge turnover. There were a lot of new members of Parliament. Uh, the WIPs offices on both sides were encouraging people not to go to Parliament. And you know, the experience of those of us who did throughout was that scrutiny is more effective. Um, yes. Echoes of the wider work-from-home debate. Yes. Uh, but if you were in the chamber... And if you had the minister there a few feet away from you and something was said that was obviously not right, you could stand up and say, Can I, you know, will he let, let me yes. intervene? Yes, uh, I, saw you, I saw you do that several times, well, saying uh, to Matt Hancock, excuse me, does that actually happen? If, if you were on a LED screen up somewhere in the back of the chamber, um, beaming in from wherever, not from planet normal, obviously, no. uh, then uh, you couldn't do that. The but procedures didn't allow. would you say now, of course, we're laughing about all these, got more gates than the badminton horse trials, haven't we? Party <laughs> gate, beer gate. But aren't we seeing politicians hoist by the petard, which they themselves agree to, often, as you said yourself, you know, questionable or ridiculous rules, which they're now being accused of hypocrisy for breaking when some of us would argue they should never have been imposed on a free people in the first place. Absolutely. And um, I, I think many of the rules were ridiculous. Many of the rules were immoral. And, you know, the idea that you would, you know, I think you were saying earlier, the idea that you would stop somebody seeing a dying close mm. relative was inhuman. Yeah. Um, but the ridiculous rules... and. I think we all have to pinch ourselves, don't we, and think yes. back to it. Yes. And the scenes of people sitting alone on a park bench mm. being moved on by the police. Yeah. Um, yes. It was a level of absurdity that mm. is just hard to grasp now. One Planet Normal listener wrote and said her daughter, I think, is at Newcastle University, and they've basically been arrested for walking on a beach <laughs> and fined. I mean, yeah. You can't catch COVID Madness. outside. Madness. Yeah. But now... Prime Minister, the leader of the opposition, aren't they, are being held to account. By, and I think one of the reasons we may all, I certainly feel very ambivalent about it, because on the one hand, I want to say this is so absurd, we've just got to stop it. We've got a cost of living crisis. People have far more things to worry about. So it was a political class which allowed rules, wasn't it, to be introduced, which criminalised normal human contact. So isn't now the, what's unfolding now with the scandals is people feeling they were dreadful hypocrites, isn't that right? Of course. And you know, I think one of the uh, difficulties in this is that, of course, the experience of the restrictions was very different depending on your own circumstances. Yes. And if you were lucky enough to be living with family, if you were living in pleasant yeah, surroundings, the garden, um, then yeah. it really wasn't yeah. so awful. For, uh, for me as a Member of Parliament, as I said, I was going into the House of Commons every week, mm. pretty mm. much as normal. Uh, some people said, well, that's very brave of you. I said, well, I don't know why it's quite so brave. We get on a, an empty railway carriage <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in, uh, in Cheshire and, and travel down to an empty Eastern station and go into a largely empty House of Commons. 
So it wasn't particularly brave. But even doing that, I think, gave a, a greater sense uh, of normality. Um, there was some routine. I, a relatively small number of my colleagues were present in the House of Commons, but you would have some of those passing conversations. We had, of course, all of the um, craziness in the Commons tea room. I remember of uh, having one chair at each table and people <laughs> having to shout across 10 feet to uh, say something to each other. And, and you know, one of the... Covid, um, doesn't, COVID doesn't move around in no, the air yeah. at all. Just, uh, well, no, just... I, I mean, yes, there's an interesting debate about that, but that's one for Sinitra, not me. <laughs> um, but uh, certainly it was, it, it was a crazy thing that through, almost through the whole of this, uh, the House of Commons itself managed to have more extreme restrictions than the rest of the country did. Uh, and you know, I think that was something we, we really should have got a grip on. Mm. But Lord, Lord, Fro- sorry, Lord Frost, who was another uh, distinguished Planet Normal guest, he said he thought it had been because the number 10 and that particular inner cabal were cut off or were experiencing yeah. life, a heightened version of normal life, probably quite exciting, to be honest, that they were not then able to really understand. Their kids were at school. They were, key, kids, they were, they they were, were special key workers. workers. Do you think that's right, that there was a disconnect between some of what was going on in the country and some of the people in the central yeah, I, power. I, mean, I, I think that is always a danger, mm. even in normal times. Yeah. Mm. Um, so in those very exceptional times, uh, I'm sure a, a great danger that yeah. would be the case. We are, of course, way over time, Sir, Sir Graham, and I do want to bring in a, a, a question from the audience in a moment, and Alison will, will go through some of the questions from um, people who are watching us yes. on, on the live stream. But I wanted to ask you this. You know, Alison and I, we've, we've met Boris Johnson over the years. Obviously, we're, we're, we're journalists, um, but we don't know him like you. Um, and I, I know you're very measured in, in what you say. Often the most powerful speakers are the most measured. Um, so let me put this to you, if I may. It wasn't Boris Johnson's instinct to lock down, not by a long chalk, mm. not the Boris Johnson that I know and, and you know much better than me. How important... Is it? What will future historians say? The impact of the fact that Boris Johnson caught this disease and probably got pretty close to losing his life, how much of a role did that play on policy over the subsequent 12 to 18 months? It it may have been significant. I think uh, Boris's instincts remain very much the same. I would say it's a far bigger problem, and I think Sunitra alluded to this, the process of decision-making, the nature of the advice that was available, uh, the lack of challenge and alternative views that were being mm. presented. Within his inner circle. Uh, well, within an inner circle, but within scientists. with the, the government's uh, advisory system. Uh, so instead of always having alternative views, mm. saying, but what's the evidence for mm. that? It was all too often lacking. And while some of us were trying to do it in the House of Commons... Uh, the answer was always, but we're following the science, yeah. as though the science was a Just similar. the phrase, the science, is just anathema. I know, Graham. Notice, Graham. The science is a series of challenges yes. ongoing. But notice that Graham had met with someone and then it was like, you know, Sir Graham Brady meets anti-vaxxers. And it was mm. much more nuanced than that. And I, Liam and I had often been challenged about this. And I think one of the things we felt very strongly with the podcast was we we couldn't risk being ever characterised as anti-vax because that would then have inhibited our ability to to challenge other things. Isn't that right? Yeah, and we we both had 
both vaccines mm. and our children did mm. and it never even crossed my mind. I mean, maybe I'm not inquisitive enough. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be a journalist, but it never struck, it never crossed my mind to not have the vaccine or to advise people not to have the vaccine. We had very... a, we had a bit of a we had a bit of a ding dong about that. Yeah, we? but that's that's you know because I didn't want care. I didn't want the the, the art of disagreement among friends. I mean, isn't that what we're meant to be good at in this country? With yes. the the art that we've lost of disagreeing without thinking the other person's mm. mad or or evil. Crikey, that's how that's how. We do way, have to we do have to ask Graham the question to which he won't answer. Which he won't answer. <laughs> how many letters? Well, I, I thought got? it'd be fun to announce it. This <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, go for it. <laughs> 30, 30. Higher, higher. What do you think about the fact that in the local elections, lots of good candidates were not describing themselves as conservatives, they were calling themselves local conservatives? Are you, ups- are you worried, as I am, that some of the more faithful voters are feeling pretty fed up? Oh, of course, I don't want faithful Conservative voters to feel fed up with the Conservative Party. Mm. Uh, So, yes, I I would far prefer people are enthusiastic about the Conservative Party. I thought when I was listening to you earlier on this subject that uh, I thought back to a lecture I heard uh, Professor Phil Cowley give in Speaker's House just before the 2017 election. And he could see there were quite a few of us in the audience who were obviously self-selected, fairly independently minded Conservative MPs. Mm. And he said, you know, I can see a number of people here in the audience I know, and I know you all think that your voters know all of the things that you vote on and all of the speeches you make in Parliament. He said, I hate to spoil this for you. <laughs> they don't know how you voted on anything or what, what you said about all this. Um, he said, there are only two things that the polling shows that the voters care about with their member of Parliament. One, uh, is he or she local? Yeah. And the other is he or she independently minded. Ah. So I went off to the 2017 election and my literature said you're independently minded local voice oh. for. <laughs> so, uh, you know, th- th- there's... Having I, previously I don't, I don't been your local independent. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, not at all. Uh, this is from Liz. When is the Conservative government actually going to put forward some Conservative policies like tax cutting, small government policies, and to quote... David Cameron, end all the green crap. What what would you say to Liz? (laughs) Well, I I would say I I think that the really big challenge, and this has got an awful lot to do with the way in which COVID was handled, um, two really fundamental pillars of what people vote for when they vote for Conservative governments. Uh, They vote for a government that is going to stand up for liberty, and they vote for a government that is going to reduce taxes rather than raise taxes. Mm, So for us to move from where we are now having gone through all these dreadful lockdowns and had mm. these ridiculous restrictions and immoral restrictions on people's lives to reasserting a reputation that we do believe in liberty and we will stand for liberty is crucial. And to get from the point driven by the reaction to COVID, uh, where we have the highest tax burden the country has had in oh, 70 years, many years yeah. back to the point where people will trust us to get their taxes, you could say their cost of living down, uh, then uh, we've got quite a big job to do in the next two years. Yeah. Let's have a question from the audience. There's a gentleman there. Thank you. Hi, Liam. Uh, it's about the uh, price cap. Um, no one talks about the value, but I think it's around 28 pence per kilowatt unit, but depending on what company you're with. But for everyone's information, my family in Canada are paying 
between five and eight pence per kilowatt hour for their electricity. Mm. And our cap is 28 pence. A big difference. Um, thank you. There is indeed there is a, a, indeed a huge difference. And what amazes me is that spring statement came on the 24th of March. Um, and since then, of course, energy prices have gone up a lot. We know there's going to be a higher cap in October when Ofgem resets the cap. And for businesses, there's no cap. Mm-hmm. You're a Northwest MP. How many small and medium-sized mm-hmm. manufacturers out there, very energy intensive? Mm-hmm. In the end, this is going to start hitting mm-hmm. unemployment. Absolutely. Uh, when is a cap not a cap? Um, and it's not a cap if you can raise it. That's so, right. Um, you know, I think it was always a, a, a questionable policy. I don't know that it was ever really going to uh, mean uh, very much. What we've got to do is do things that get the price of energy down. Are you going to call for an emergency budget? I've been calling for an emergency budget since March the 24th, <laughs> the minute Prishy Sunak sat down. Great. I, 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 don't, I don't think massively that you call it an emergency budget. I certainly think it would make sense to, at the very least, to take the 5% VAT off energy bills. There's no point in worrying about people's energy bills and putting in special mechanisms to try to subsidise them if you're already putting a tax on top of them. Uh, having left the European Union, we are now free to get rid of that, and I think we should take advantage of that. Absolutely. Let's just have a question from this lady here, if we may. You wait for the mic. Hi there. Um, back when I was studying economics back in the dark ages... Um, you look we- far too interesting to be an economist. <laughs> <laughs> I switched to healthcare, actually. And, um, we used to call... Um, cutting taxes, um, expansionary fiscal policy, meaning that cutting taxes would make the economy grow. Why aren't we doing that when we apparently have a Conservative government? Oh, yeah, I think I've probably already indicated I've got a lot of sympathy with... Uh, <laughs> um, but Graham I, is I, an independently-minded Conservative. <laughs> local, local. Local, local. Uh, local. But, uh, I, I think that you know, the truth of it is we have got um, a, a handbrake turn to execute between what has been going on over the last two years of spending vast amounts of money and just assuming that the cost will be picked up somewhere by someone at some time in the future. And now we're realising that the cost is with us um, and it's being exacerbated massively by the effects of the war in Ukraine uh, and you've got everything bad that could be happening all in one go. Uh, but it is a... a big and difficult change to get from the trajectory that we had of increasing spending and massive borrowing to fund that to the lower taxes that you and I would both like to see. One point point I would, if I may, um, like you were saying about food prices, Liam, we know that food is price inelastic, even more so is the supply, I'll explain later. Is the supply of energy? I know what inelastic means. It's Nora Batty's knickers. Yeah, Nora Batty's tights. Don't you know? I don't. I know, I know everything what, about that. What's even more? What has an even more inelastic supply is energy. What's been happening over the last however many years that we think that energy can be achieved by a few windmills <laughs> and a bit of gas storage. Absolutely. I mean, crikey. And, I, I, and Why I, did we close that rough facility off the coast of Yorkshire? Well, not, not a very good idea, I think. <laughs> but, uh, but it might, it might have been the putting on, the... Uh, do better than that. It, 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 it might be the putting the... Um, uh, price cap on might have had an effect on mm. some of the investment that was mm. necessary mm. Uh, to make sure that we had that diverse and plentiful supply of energy. And maybe there's a lesson there about windfall taxes as well. Astonishing, isn't it? Energy policy, you know, it used to be the stuff of nerds, didn't it? And suddenly <laughs> it's mainstream politics. Well, look, we, we've run out of time, I'm afraid. 
Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for the most distinguished Sir Graham Brady local, MP. Local. The Conservative <laughs> local. <Hey>. Independent. <laughs> local. Independent. <laughs> local. Thanks a lot. We're almost at the end of this 100th episode of Planet Normal. Um, I just want to end by um, reading out a poem. It's a poem from one of our listeners um, who uh, wrote it to mark our 100th anniversary. I've put it on one of the podcasts in the past, but I thought this would be a good time to read it out again. This is Johnny from the Yorkshire Dales. Aboard the rockets, marking 100 episodes of Planet Normal. Get your hanky ready. I know, I know. At first we believed there was nothing to fear. Now but a cold, born a long way from here. But then came Italy, scenes of unrest. Our great British resolve was put to the test. Who to trust, what to read, things were so unclear. Especially when some seemed to enjoy spreading fear. Hancock in charge, what could go wrong? Ten grand and the slammer for a mistake on a form. <laughs> Hands face space, he did cry. Little did we know he was more than a bit sly. <laughs> the newspeak exploded, the rules made no sense. Wear this cloth you can see through and don't touch your friends. <laughs> but out of the darkness came a vessel, a home for the brave, a rocket of reason. Don't be afraid. There's more to life than COVID, they announced with aplomb. So aboard I climbed. Finally a home with others like me. I no longer felt so alone. Oh, lovely. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Thanks to all of you for joining us here in person in central London and those of you who have joined us from the comfort of your own homes, the pub, the car, wherever you are, because you can be where you like now because lockdown is, of course, over. Hey! If you've enjoyed Planet Normal, do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps others find us. Liam reads them. So the Planet Normal family can grow. (laughs) If you'd like to watch this event back, you can do so on the Telegraph Live YouTube channel from Friday morning evening, and you can listen to the special live podcast on your preferred podcast app. Do keep emailing us. Again, we want to seriously apologise to those of you who couldn't get tickets to this live event. We are planning more Planet Normal events soon. Before we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, Alison and I just wanted to thank, from the bottom of our hearts, our producers, Isabel Bouchard. Hey! Elliot Lampett. Hey! Our original producer, Rhys Gunter, who is among us. Hey! Our editor, No Hitch with Zoe Hitch. She is actually changing <laughs> her name yeah. by Depol. <laughs> Plus, special thanks to Lanra Kerrigan, Laura Hill, Jade Clark and Summer Mitchell, who helped us stage this event so smoothly. Thank you you. to you all. Thank you. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. (laughs) 